May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There is no piece of public art, no building, no landmark in all of American life that compares with the temple in Jerusalem in the imagination and life of a first century Jew. I think that's probably at least partly because of the vast size and incredible diversity of the United States, but mostly also because our most famous landmarks have symbolic value of one kind, but not really of a second. So the Statue of Liberty reminds us of America's immigrant roots, but it doesn't really have much other significance. The Grand Canyon conveys the majesty of nature, but it doesn't really do anything. And then even our tallest buildings, the Sears Tower or the Empire State Building, or I guess the Space Needle, if you want to be local, uh, they're just sort of tall, and that's it. None of them hold together these multiple layers of meaning that the temple had all at once. So the temple is a couple things at the same time. It is on the one hand a symbol of a defiant nation surrounded by its enemies. It's also the political center of Israel. And it's also the religious site where God meets his people in prayer and celebration. For Jewish people, it was truly the center of the world. Now, the temple was a massive structure. It's built with stones that in some case weighed over 500 tons, while the whole structure was more than 10 stories high. You will recall, of course, this is the time before the invention of the crane. So you can imagine the amount of labor it took to put a building together that massive. It's easy to imagine why making a pilgrimage to that place, not just to worship, but to see it, would have been the goal and the highlight of every single Jewish person's life, especially if you came from some of the more far-flung cities of the Mediterranean world. You would have heard about the temple, but never really had a sense for its scale until you see it. And all of that is why the desecration and destruction of the temple in the year 70 was such a catastrophic loss, because the temple was more than just a building. And that's the place where Joseph and Mary bring the newborn Jesus. They come to Jerusalem to present their firstborn son to God and to complete the rites of purification necessary under the law for Mary after giving birth. They have this holy appointment or obligation that they have to keep. Now, all of that, when combined with all the symbolism of the temple, sounds pretty religiously dense. It's heavy. There are lots of duties and expectations. If you're a child, these are the sort of words that your parents use when they're very grave-faced, sort of instructing you. You have duties and expectations and familial responsibilities. And all of that is attached to this visit for Mary and Joseph and their small infant baby. We often 
I think, generalize the contrast between Judaism and Christianity. Thinking of Judaism as a religion that comes with lots of rules and expectations. The law is always a capital L. While Christianity is more of a faith, it is about grace and relationship. But this is a kind of false dichotomy because it's clear from the description we read in Scripture that the faith that Joseph and Mary were practicing was life-giving. It was not performed out of a sense of obligation, but with real joy. They raised their son in a faithful Jewish household, keeping the law and adhering to its requirements. Far from being a burden that was too heavy for them to bear in their lives, the law of Moses and the requirements of faithful Jewish practice set up these little moments where the presence of God and his grace could break in where obedience to the God of their ancestors was drawing Joseph and Mary and their growing family deeper into a relationship with the Lord. For them and for many Jews, obeying the law was actually an expression of love for God, a submission to God's purpose that made it possible for God to act so that the Holy Spirit and the law are working together for the good of the whole world. Now, those moments, when we take them together, reveal a path that is set before Jesus that his family would need years to understand for themselves and that they probably perhaps never fully grasped until many, many years later. Jesus was raised in this family of deeply faithful people. And as a result, we have to figure out ways to embrace those Jewish roots and not airbrush them out of the gospel story. Earlier this week, the world marked Holocaust Remembrance Day, a day set aside specifically to make sure that we never forget the horrific campaign of systematic oppression and murder that was inflicted by the Nazis upon the Jews of Europe, as well as other minority groups in the middle of the 20th century. This year's remembrance fell on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau, the largest of the Nazi death camps. Located in occupied Poland, it was a place of almost unspeakable evil that we must nevertheless resolve not to keep silent about. At least 1.1 million lives were snuffed out inside the gates of that horrific facility. Many of them Jewish, but also Poles and Romani and Russians, as well as others. Women, children, the elderly, and those who were disabled were marked for death first because the Nazis believed that they had no value to them as workers. They were often sent to their deaths as soon as they disembarked from the trains that brought them to the gates of the camp and not even registered because they were regarded as immediately expendable. Now that kind of monstrous evil is almost incomprehensible to you and I. That sort of disgusting act committed on such a large industrial scale rightly staggers our imaginations. And if you're at all like me, all you want to do is talk about anything else and not dwell on the past. We may believe it's not important for us to recall such dark moments because we ourselves are not capable of such evil. But the church, 
must be willing to look without blinking at the sins of history. And we do this not to remind ourselves of how holy and righteous and good we are, but to acknowledge the sin that lurks in every human heart and to see for ourselves the catastrophic consequences of failing to reckon with the sinful nature of humanity. Whenever we get the opportunity to speak up for righteousness and justice, we should do so. And as it relates to the Jewish people in particular, it is absolutely necessary because of the Jewishness of our Lord. For the church to remain silent because of our discomfort or because the point seems so obvious as to not bear repeating is a great danger. Because there were plenty of German Christians who went along with the evil of the Nazi regime for fear of rocking the boat or for worse reasons. We must never become complacent. And as a preacher, I am all too happy to annoy you with repetition for the good of all of our souls. The word of God makes it very clear that Jesus grew up in a faithful family of Jewish believers, that he was first and foremost a Jewish Messiah, and that the redemption he proclaimed was an extension of God's love for Israel now shared with the whole world, much to our benefit. To put it very directly, that means that any notion of anti-Semitism or racial superiority of any kind is completely counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is for all people. The image of God, which is reflected in every human life, requires that we are clear about this. We should not be able to avoid such truth, and we should speak it boldly. And if you believe otherwise, I urge you to go to Scripture and examine your conscience, and I pray that God would reveal the truth to you. This is not a matter of just believing something about Jesus in order to get along better in polite company. Racism and xenophobia are a deadly apostasy. That sin has to be rooted out of our hearts and our lives and exposed to the cleansing power of the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus grew up in a particular family with a specific ancestry and history, and his Jewish roots are the foundation of our faith and a gift that we share in our baptism in his name. The details of his life are important for us, not just as a matter of historical record, but because in this specific one human life, God chose to present himself to us, to become one of us so that we might become like God. And the details that we know about his life matter to us because they must matter to God. None of what happened in the life of Jesus was a coincidence, especially nothing that was significant enough that it made its way into the Gospels. In fact, the great surprise of the Gospel through the eyes of a first century Jewish follower of Jesus would have been that God was able to include the Gentiles, the whole non-Jewish world, at all. Simeon and Anna, who we hear from this morning, are exceptions because they not only expect that the whole world will be blessed by the particular Jewish Messiah, but they are hoping for it to happen. They are excited to see what God is going to do. They have been waiting for the Christ with eager anticipation, looking for what all of Israel and indeed the whole world was waiting for. 
For these two, the birth of Jesus is not just the beginning of something important. It is the thing itself. Jesus' birth means that salvation has arrived, that their hope has been justified, and that all will be well. In this little child, they see that God has fulfilled his promises to his people, and that the, in the end, no matter how dark it might be, the light of God's truth and love will break through and shine brighter than any light. Through Jesus Christ, God's agent of salvation, people do not just see the evidence of God's rule. They are engulfed in it. When we meet Jesus, we are all invited to follow him, to be led from the kingdom of the darkness of human sin into the light of God's love for us. The location for this meeting this morning of the faithful, prayerful Jewish saints and the family of their newborn Lord at the temple is deeply significant. Simeon and Anna are praying there because the temple is the heart of the life of the Jewish people. And they meet the Messiah there because he will redeem his people from the cross in Jerusalem. The temple is the locus of God's presence. It's the place where faithful Israelites come to meet their God. And it's in that place that the universal reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ is announced. It's an ironic turn that in the center of the world for Israel, in the temple, God discloses that salvation for his people, Israel, includes a call to discipleship for the whole world. But, of course, there will also be conflict. Simeon tells Mary that her son will not be beloved by all, but that his life will be a source of division. And that there will be a sword which divides those who are allies and those who are opponents of Christ from one another. And it will pierce her own soul as well. This day we are reminded that Jesus brought light to the whole world. And we take the first steps with him and his parents from the joy of Christmas and his childhood. And with Simeon's words to Mary, we take a step towards the purifying fire of Lent, Good Friday and Easter. From here forward, Jesus' life will not be easy or simple, but directed instead toward the cross. That is where faithfulness will lead him and us. To be dedicated to the Lord and brought up in faith and trust means that Jesus will not shy away from the thing he has come to accomplish, even though it seems so difficult. The prophet Malachi foresaw this, that the Lord would one day arrive in the flesh to cleanse and purify his people, but that his visitation would not just mean warm and fuzzy feelings. Malachi says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier. Those who have sought God's deliverance may now find themselves catching a tiger by the tail. Because here comes the Lord. And the refining fire is kindled. 
Jesus, the Jewish Messiah who brought, was brought to the temple by his parents to be offered to God and years later was dragged out of that same temple by his parents for asking too many questions about scripture and years after that was later driven out of the temple for harassing the money changers and the teachers. That Jesus brought light to the whole world. He kept the law faithfully and fulfilled it in every way. He learned to do so from his earthly parents who sought to honor his father and theirs in how they carried themselves. To live a life of dedicated faithfulness of that kind is no more popular now than it ever has been. Joseph and Mary were probably as countercultural in their own time as parents who baptize their children and seek to raise them in a Christian way are today. But it is that steady and patient kind of stubborn commitment that is the best way to follow and know the Lord. In that sense, you and I also have a holy obligation, a divine appointment of our own. We should not give ourselves to the Christian life of following Jesus because it is a quick solution to our problems or because we hope to gain power or prestige for ourselves. We follow Jesus because it is the way that leads to life. And that invitation is extended to us. A life that is not just for eternity, but life right now. The abundant life of God is offered to you and I as a free gift of grace. And that grace is what Christ came to share with the whole world. Not just one select group, but with people everywhere. That the whole world might come to know the one true God. Amen.